0: Welcome to Safety Spectrum, your environmental health and safety connection. This program is a presentation of the Michigan Safety Conference. For almost a century, the annual conference has provided credible educational opportunities and valuable support to the safety and health practitioner by offering 120 instructional programs, along with exhibits highlighting the latest in safety equipment, instrumentation, and demonstrations. To learn more about the conference, please find us at mich.com m-i-c-h Conference.org. the safety spectrum i'm your host sheila i this program is sponsored by the michigan safety conference and our topic today is truck safety fact versus myth sharing the road safely is obviously the responsibility of all drivers truck drivers face some unique requirements and challenges and our speaker today will explore those uh, challenges our guest chuck simmons started the transportation industry as an over the road CDL truck driver in 2002. He moved into the company's safety office a few years later and worked as a motor carrier director of safety for seven years. He joined the Michigan Center for Truck Safety in 2014, facilitating their truck simulator program and eventually serving as the interim director of the center. He joined Penske's truck leasing as a regional safety specialist in 2017, traveling seven states, communicating with drivers and motor carriers about truck safety and state and federal rec- regulations. He is also vice chair of the transportation division of the Michigan Safety Conference. So thank you for joining me today on Safety Spectrum, Chuck.
1: Thank you for having me, Sheila. It's great to be here.
0: So in your opinion, with your experience as a driver and as a safety director of the trucking industry, what are some of the challenges or issues faced by today's truck drivers?
1: Well, there are many, uh, probably too many to list in, in one podcast. Uh, Traffic is always a problem, but it's definitely been getting worse lately. There, the number of vehicles out on the road on any given day or hours uh, increasing and has been for, for quite a while. And I think the, the level of training that we give, uh, not just to professional drivers, but to our kids is is kind of lacking. Uh, you know, I have, I have my kids are in their mid-20s, so it wasn't that long ago that they went through went through their driver training. Uh, And as any parent can tell you, it's it's a bit of a white knuckle experience as a parent because you you know what you're sending them out into. But when I talked to both of my kids, I discovered that the conversation that we're having with our, our young people about how to drive safely around large vehicles on the highway really isn't what it should be.
0: It does seem to be experience-based because I'm pretty sure they didn't talk about that in driver's training when I was a pup and when my daughter had it and they just, they have no idea.
1: It's, it's true. And another challenge that I think uh, truck drivers uh, today experience is there is a, a, a kind of a, a, a gap in between 10,000 and 26,000 pounds. And we'll get to those definitions in a minute, but basically the straight trucks, the delivery trucks that you see around town, the ones that are too small to require a CDL, but large enough that the regulations apply to them, uh, they end up almost like a a forgotten population of drivers. We're requiring them to follow certain rules and regulations, but we're not really, requiring them to have obtained any driver training or uh, any formal training. Uh, If you read the regulations, it basically says they have to be familiar with the safe operation of the vehicle based on experience or training, full stop, that's it. It doesn't define minimum experience or minimum training requirements for them, so. uh,
0: Performance-based regulations, just like the standards, (laughs) performance-based.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. And and it's it leaves it absolutely open to interpretation. So a company will say, hey, I need somebody to drive my straight truck. I'll spend five minutes showing them where the brake pedals are, and, and we're done. We've trained them. And, and, and they're missing out.
0: Yeah, I remember driving my first panel truck for work, and it had no windows in back. And I'm supposed to back it up to a dock, and it's like, wow, white knuckle. I yeah. don't think they do much on defensive uh, driver training either. in, in- Training classes.
1: Not enough. Uh, The the good news is that that's slowly changing. Uh, There are new regulations that kicked in in February that require CDL drivers to actually have gone through formal training in in, in, to get their very first CDL or to upgrade from a Class B to a Class A, and and that's helpful. But I think we need to be farther, uh, pardon the the reference, farther down that road of safety than we already are. Absolutely.
0: Well, let's get down to who is required to follow the transportation safety regs and who's exempt from them.
1: So, that can be a pretty challenging question because there are different applicability rules for different sections of the regulations. Basically, this is how it works the federal government will write these safety regulations. But remember, the federal government doesn't actually Field uh, a highway enforcement team. You don't actually see a federal highway patrolman. You see state highway patrol. Okay. So the states are required to adopt those federal regulations as state law and then enforce them as such. And so you've got a guideline, but you've got differentials from one state to the next in a few areas, and you've got differentials in specific categories of regulations you may have hours of service apply to one group you may have drug and alcohol apply to another group and they're mixed so to get back to your actual question who do they apply to the definitions define a commercial motor vehicle as anything with a gross vehicle weight rating of ten thousand and one pounds or greater so all of that said the, the short takeaway is if the vehicle is rated by the manufacturer for more than 10,000 pounds, it is a commercial vehicle when used for commerce. You can use it for recreation. You can use it for personal, you know, moving your kid to college or to the apartment. That's not what we're talking about. But when it's used in any kind of business capacity, whether it's a, a nonprofit, profit uh, whether it's You know, somebody going around collecting food for the church—it's still a business, and and it's still a commercial motor vehicle. So the majority of the regulations will apply to anything like that. It's part of the reason that uh, uh, sprinter vans and transit vans are so popular is they're usually less than ten thousand, so these rules wouldn't apply to them.
0: Well, you gave me a good example where you said people can kind of slip into the requirements. Mm -hmm. When they start doing their own delivery, transportation of product.
1: Yeah. Imagine if you're uh, a business owner, you you own a company that makes widgets and you got your factory going and you're building these widgets and you're selling them. And as you start up, you need to deliver those either to your customers or deliver them to the market. So you're going to call a trucking company. They're going to show up at your dock and haul them away and everybody's happy at some point. You're going to realize as you grow that it is more cost effective for you to do those deliveries yourself and not outsource it so you're now going to go rent a truck or you're going to lease a truck or you're going to buy a used truck as your first one and without realizing it you that widget manufacturer of you know acme widgets has you have suddenly crossed over a threshold without realizing it and that threshold is you are what the dot calls a motor carrier. And a motor carrier is simply any individual or organization that utilizes a truck that puts a truck out onto the highway, whether, uh, whether it's rented or leased or borrowed or stolen. And I don't recommend stealing trucks. <laughs> uh, but suddenly those rules apply. And, and so many times I get calls from, uh, from customers or companies they say, nobody told me, or I bought this truck used, or I even bought it new, and they didn't really tell me about all of these regulations uh, that suddenly I was subject to.
0: Well, So when Penske leases trucks, are you, are you sure that they have, uh, have the required licenses or understand the rules?
1: That is one of uh, of my responsibilities, is I work with our sales team. And when the sales team approaches a customer that says, look, we noticed that you've been uh renting all of this time and you are probably doing that because you think it gets you out of the regulations technically it doesn't we've got a guy for that we've got a uh a safety specialist that's me who can kind of guide you through all of the regulatory compliance questions do i need a dot number do i need drug and alcohol testing do i need electronic logs
0: I think a lot of us are aware of the commercial driver's license CDL and I guess they're not thinking of the 10,000 pounds and above. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, the CDL requirement kicks in when the vehicle is rated for uh, above 26,000 pounds. So there's uh, that second threshold. Once you cross over into CDL vehicles, you've got a few more, few more rules that kick in like mandatory DOT drug and alcohol testing. For uh, you know, for pre-employment and random testing and post-crash testing, things like that, uh, and then you've got some other uh, taxes that are actually only applicable above a certain size. So yeah. it can it can get a little complicated. I like to think of it as job security for me, but but for <laughs> a company that isn't aware of any of this, yes, uh, it it can be very frustrating. It's kind of like buying an airplane and saying, wait. But what FAA? What's what's that all about? So yeah, I know
0: when I was, of course, I'm older, so I remember when the CDL came into effect and I had drivers driving trucks that large and had to put them back in school, which was kind of hairy when some of these people are 40, 50 years old to learn the rules and how to call something. something. But the whole drug and alcohol testing was new territory for us all as well.
1: That's a challenge.
0: Basically, it's basically is one drink, you know, the the oh, yeah. .002, I think it is. And it you're yeah. you're driving something besides a truck. That was a real eye opener too, I think, because you have a CDL license, no matter what, right?
1: Yes, and that license, things that you do in your car will affect your uh, motor vehicle record, which will affect your employability. But uh, yeah, it can what you do in your car can disqualify you from driving a truck. So that can be challenging as well.
0: So, what are the some of the most commonly held misconceptions about truck safety regs, or even the operation?
1: Well, again, to, to kind of reiterate, one of the the, the conception, one of the comments that I get from people are, "Wait a minute, this is just a little truck. I don't operate a full size semi. None of these rules should apply to me. Or I'm a nonprofit. None of these rules should apply to me." Um, one of the other comments that i get a lot is well i've been doing this for several years nobody's stopped me why how could they apply to me if nobody's actually pulled me over and ticketed me for not complying with these rules and the answer is usually well you got lucky because there's a lot more trucks out there than there are police officers or motor carrier enforcement officers so uh it doesn't surprise me that people do things for many years before it actually shows up on their radar
0: and I think uh, as a driver, a regular driver or a young person or somebody not experienced in it, I don't think they understand how the truck operates, starting, stopping, passing, those kind of things.
1: That's a big failing of our, well, society as a whole, but all of our, 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 also our driver training programs. We don't teach our, our young kids who are learning how to drive about the limitations of a truck. So they go out onto the road, assuming that trucks have the same capabilities as cars do, that they can start and stop like a car can. And they don't understand why a truck driver might behave a certain way. They'll immediately get angry at that truck driver for whatever behavior they observed. uh, And they assume that the truck driver is trying to run them over or kill them. And that's surely not the case, because those truck drivers have the same desires everyone else, is, everyone else has to make it home safe at the end of the day.
0: Well, they can't stop as quick as what people assume.
1: People assume that they can stop just as quickly as a passenger car when, in fact, a fully loaded tractor trailer, 18-wheeler, uh, with 80,000 pounds of truck and freight and fuel uh, can take, uh, More than a football field's length to come to stop from a highway speed. And that's on good pavement in good driving conditions with the good equipment. Uh, You know, you start to throw in uh, used tires or water on the road, or heaven forbid, icy roads, uh, that can double or triple very quickly so uh, quite a
0: that, visual football field that's quite a visual field.
1: it is i mean that's that's you know 100 yards that's 300 feet the stopping distance is is something that even sometimes a lot of truck drivers forget about uh it drives me nuts when i see uh, people following too close on the freeway uh, they tend to bunch up because they don't want to let somebody in and they forget that they're putting themselves at risk uh, when when there's an emergency and the vehicle in front of you stops and you can't uh, react in time.
0: I saw uh, recently, I saw um, on television, an 18-wheeler driverless. They're starting to experiment with over-the-road trucks being able to be automated. What do you think about that?
1: Well... Right now, it is very clearly in the experimental stages. Uh, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, you know, every, every, there's, there's hundreds of trucks out there with no driver. That's not the case. Right now, they're still in the very early infancy of automated vehicles, such that every vehicle out there has a driver in it. Even if it's being operated by machinery, there's a safety backup, and that's the actual driver. Uh, they're, they're not even close to getting to the point where they're going to put a fully automated driverless vehicle out on the road with no driver, even as a test. Those are done in a closed yard behind a fence. So if things go awry, uh, you know, it's not going to hurt a lot of people. But I think in the long run, and, and not a lot of people will agree with me on this, uh, but I think the potential for saving lives uh, from automated vehicles is going to be huge because as a society we've gotten used to and we've gotten numb to the fact that every year 40,000 people lose their lives on U.S. highways and that's just in the U.S. alone and that number is huge but we don't pay attention to it we it doesn't shock us like an airplane crashing with 300 people. We're shocked and it's front page news and everybody wants an investigation. But 40,000 people die on the freeway and we, we consider it the cost of doing business in our lives. And I think anything that cuts into that, anything that reduces that as significantly as automated vehicles could and probably will is gonna be worth it.
0: Well, you threw out an interesting comment the other day about the, how many fatals are, are from driver error, essentially, if I understood you correctly.
1: From one year to the next, anywhere from 90 to 95% of fatal crashes are determined to be human error. If you think about it, there are very few circumstances where a crash is truly preventable or uh, truly non-preventable. For example, a tree falls on a car. There was nothing you could have done. Or the deer jumps out at the very, very last second. There's nothing you could have done. Uh, But the majority of crashes are caused by drunk drivers, high drivers, uh, following too closely, driving too fast for conditions, or, or or falling asleep at the wheel, some other Mistake or combination of mistakes that could have been prevented by everybody being a much better driver.
0: So what yes. do you, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you consider the most frequent violations and how can they be avoided?
1: For commercial vehicles, which is the, the technical term for trucks, right? A commercial motor vehicle. Uh, I would say by far the most frequent violation that is seen at the roadside or in a way station inspection are equipment violations. Uh. And almost all of them can be solved by doing a really quality pre-trip inspection. If you're a truck driver, uh, even if you weren't trained on this, you can get trained. You can download the CDL manual, even if you don't have a CDL uh, from the Secretary of State's uh, website and read on how to do a pre-trip inspection. You can go onto YouTube and just type in how do I... pre-trip a truck. And that 15 minutes will change your life if you've never done it before. Uh, But it's actually a mandatory requirement that we do that.
0: Now, you're responsible for seven states. Are the regulations different in each state?
1: There are some differentials from one state to another, but the vast majority of, of the really important regulations are the same because they're federal, and each state has adopt has to adopt them in order to be eligible for for highway uh, highway funding from the federal ah, government. All, all of that money, the millions of dollars that flows into each state, backed from the federal government, there's there's strings attached to that. They have to have a 21 year old drinking age. They have to adopt federal motor carrier safety regulations as state law. There's a few other. Uh, conditions on those. It's not just free money.
0: So uh, what what are some of the penalties for taking shortcuts on those regulatory compliance issues?
1: They could be pretty severe. And, and the good news is they're all documented. The The regulations say, here are the rules. Here's what you must always do. Here what's, here's what you must never do. And by the way, here are the fines. We're going to lay them out on, in black and white. So the penalties, are, and they can be numerous. But they can be very, very expensive. During a DOT audit, if the DOT says we're going to we're going to come in and audit not just this one driver or truck, but the whole company, take oh. a look at how you're doing. Those fines can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. If a company either doesn't know what they're doing, or they know and are willfully violating those regulations, and in the most severe cases of willful, repeated violations where the company knows exactly what they're doing. They're breaking the rules on purpose to make money. Uh, you'll see people go to jail. So it, prison is not outside the realm of possibility. There are some famous cases where CEOs who knowingly had documented their, their failures as, as leaders and safety managers had, had gone to jail.
0: And even at the very least, you're out of service while you're being audited, I would imagine. So you can't deliver your goods.
1: Potentially, if, if they find enough uh, critical violations to put you out of service, then the entire company is out of, out of service. During a roadside inspection, uh, for example, at a way station, or if they just pull you over, if they find a problem with the vehicle, they'll stop the vehicle until repairs <laughs> can be made. If they find problems with the driver, for example, their medical card is expired. Their license expired. They won't let that driver continue. The company will have to send another driver oh, to, sure. uh, to move the vehicle. And also, think of the PR. If your company name is on the side of that truck sure. and it's parked out back, uh, people know and, and people can see that, that there's an issue. You, you don't want to do that.
0: So to be facetious, if a company follows all the rules, will they actually be safe?
1: The government would love you to believe that. The government will hand you the regulation book and say, hey, follow these rules and you will be just fine. But once you've been in the industry for a couple of years, you figure out pretty quickly, regulate, regulatory compliance only gets you so far because we have to do more. We have to be better. We have to know that those are minimums. Those are not best practices. Those are absolute minimums just to skate. Uh, The the federal government actually came up with a program in 2015, they're still developing it, called Beyond Compliance. That's the name of the, the program where they would give regulatory credit, if you will, to companies that were adopting advanced safety equipment on their trucks like lane departure warnings, collision avoidance, adaptive cruise control. Uh, technologies that are meant to uh, reduce crashes and are helping have are absolutely measurably making a difference Uh, and companies that would adopt enhanced driver fitness measures, uh, not physical fitness, but, uh, you know, driver qualification and and driver training programs.
0: So so what's the best way to develop a safety culture uh, around transportation?
1: That's always the, the big question, isn't it? Uh, hang on 10 seconds, I apologize. I should have had this up before I started this and I didn't, and now I have it back up so we can resume. So that's that's the big question. Uh, safety culture, it, you can Google safety culture and come up with uh, 11 different definitions. The one that I like best is from a, a gentleman named Dr. Douglas Weigeman, he was a associate professor of systems and industrial and systems engineering at the University of Wisconsin. And he had this very long definition, but the first sentence was absolutely brilliant. He said, safety culture is the enduring value and priority placed on worker and public safety by everyone in every group at every level of an organization. And then he goes on and talks about you know learning from your mistakes and and uh you know being rewarded as individuals in a manner consistent with those values but that very first statement every person at every level of an organization it's it has to come from both directions it has to be a top-down approach as well as a bottom-up approach the leadership has to develop the culture by making sure that there are people at every level who, for lack of a better term, drank the Kool-Aid, who drink, sleep, and eat safety and understand that it's a foundation for your business. It's not a, a box to tick. It's not something that's preventing you from doing your business. It's a foundation for everything that that business does. And once you have champions at the different levels, once you have drivers who are your safety champions and dispatchers who are your safety champions, you start to really get a handle on instilling that as a culture.
0: Same expectations. It seems like that's a company you wanna work for that takes your safety as a priority and expects everybody to follow, dance to the same music, so to speak.
1: Exactly.
0: So what does Penske do to create a safety culture? Let's break it down to your
1: point. well. I, I'm I'm not a salesperson and they'll they'll probably uh, want to have my head on a pike for not telling you all the wonderful things we do. But <laughs> but I'll tell you something. I, I've been with Penske for five years and I, I learned pretty quick that this company was founded on, on on a culture of safety. Roger Penske obviously started this company. But all of the people he hired and, and brought in, he understood, I mean, he was a race car driver. Uh, you know, he, he was a dra- race car driver before he started the Penske Racing Team. So he understands what happens when people stop paying attention to safety. And he saw those things happen in real time. But he brought people in who had that understanding and he continued, made sure that that was built into the the policies and the procedures of the company, that we do things safely or we don't do them. If we can't ensure that everyone in our building goes home with the same number of functioning fingers, toes, and eyeballs that they punched in with, why are we here? So, uh, you know, we have an infrastructure, we have a safety infrastructure, we have an HR infrastructure that understands and supports those goals. And then we have constant reminders. We have rewards and recognition programs internally where people who do it right and do it safely are celebrated. And and that I think is critical.
0: So what kind of measurements do you use? What kind of metrics?
1: We use a lot of metrics. Uh, we're... It, it, it's always a little touchy when you say well we're, we're going to use uh, the number of reported injuries as a metrics because right. you don't That's want you, exactly you don't want to to uh, to discourage people from actually reporting a, a true injury uh, what we look at is uh, for example I do annual facility safety reviews uh, and then each branch manager does their own internal monthly safety reviews and we look at those scores we look at what problems are we having repeatedly at a location or what problems are we seeing trending as a company as a whole? What can we do to address those? And we do, we're always thinking up better ways of doing things, uh, of improving our policies, tightening the enforcement on our policies of things like wearing reflective vests when we're walking around our yards, wearing uh, Z87, Safety glasses for our technicians who are working in the shops. Um, so, those those are just some of the things that we try to do.
0: You mentioned something about safety champions. Are these uh, from the <laughs> rank and file that have special duties or?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, you're probably familiar with something called America's Road Team, uh, the American Trucking Association. Every year. Every couple of years, puts together a team of trucking ambassadors that go around the country and and basically they're they're talking to as many people as they can get in front of about the importance of the trucking industry, the importance of good drivers, and they take the best of the best drivers. Uh, they have to have spotless records, certain uh, number of years of minimum experience. And uh, Penske drivers are almost always included in that America's Road team. You know, we, we take that seriously enough that we will uh, we'll champion those people and give them that opportunity.
0: That's great. So what do you, why do you believe this topic is important now to be talking about?
1: I think it always has been. I think right now, there are some troubling trends that we're starting to see if you look at the crash rates and the fatality rates as you know as a graph since we started measuring these things as a as a nation we didn't start measuring them until the 1960s because that was when uh we kind of became uh aware of a lot of the problems and aware of potential solutions it's, it's really, I think one of the major advances was slow-motion photography, slow-motion video. We developed that in the late 50s, early 60s. We started doing crash videos uh, at the manufacturer's level. Suddenly, we realized, hey, there's some things that we can actually address. Once we started tracking those crash rates and fatality rates, they started to become reduced because of the technology that was introduced from seatbelts Airbags to anti-lock brakes, we see a continual decline in crash rates. That's good. Here's the troubling trend in the last few years: that decline has started to flatten and even started to climb back up a little bit. That's a troubling trend.
0: Attribute that to more traffic or more miles driven, or
1: I attribute it to several different factors. There's no single reason, just (laughs) like there's no single reason that the Crash rate had been going down for so many years until probably about uh, 2014, 2013. There's no single reason that it plateaued and started to climb up. But yes, I think the number of vehicles on the road uh, had a lot to do with it. Uh, Plus the pandemic also, I think, contributed to that a lot because we saw for a little while, we saw fewer vehicles on the road and people tend to take that as an invitation to speed. Uh, Michigan State Police have have reported that there was a huge spike in the number of speeding citations uh, during the early days of the pandemic, because people got out onto the highway at 9 in the morning, and it wasn't rush hour. It was a wasteland that was barren. There was nobody there. So phew, off they went, which means that the crash rates may have stayed stable, but the fatalities per crash that's what michigan
0: state did a study and they saw the fatalities went up both pedestrian and car fatalities went up during the pandemic and Mm -hmm. speed is one factor but of course there's always a lot of reasons like you say
1: absolutely there is
0: so what what's your takeaway what what can we as drivers do to avoid these accidents
1: the first thing we can do is absolutely take responsibility for the situation and say look These these are large vehicles. This this is a a, this straight truck is is rated for 16,000 pounds. This this semi is rated for 80,000 in Michigan. You can legally operate up to 164,000 pounds on a properly configured vehicle without a special permit. That's why we see the gravel haulers and the lumber haulers uh, that are bringing trees down from the Upper Peninsula. That's a lot of vehicle. It really is. And you can drive one of those at the age of 18 if you don't leave the state. So we need to recognize the sources of our problems and start addressing them. We need to say, we need to do more than just the minimum required. Uh, we need to stop looking at it as safety, as a box to check and start thinking of it as, wait, these, these trucks are sharing the road with my family. My mother is out on, my kids are out on these roadways. What can I do to to reduce the likelihood that my truck or a truck in my control is going to get involved in a crash?
0: I think you said uh, being observant uh, improves your odds and space management, knowing where you are in the midst of the traffic and looking ahead to things.
1: The DOT separates their regulations into three sections. What does the driver need? What does the vehicle need? What does the company that puts the driver and the vehicle out on the road together need. And each one of those stages is absolutely critical. The company has to make sure that everything is ready to go before it goes. The driver is the one ultimately held responsible during a roadside inspection or an interface with the police, that everything on the vehicle and the driver is functional. But it really is a group effort. It really is a situation where everybody needs to do everything right. And the worst crashes, the ones that get splashed across the headlines, like the Tracy Morgan crash several years back, were sus- not necessarily systemic failures, but situations where there were repeated bad choices made.
0: Yeah, and that where, often is the case in re- reconstructing an accident.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, my final thoughts, uh, being observant, Space management, but you know, no matter what industry or occupation, a company that supports you for training and gives you the resources while providing positive feedback are really cornerstones for building a successful safety culture. So, I'd like to thank uh, Chuck Simmons of Penske's Chuck Leasing. He can be reached at www.gopensky.com. And of course, if you'd like more information about the Michigan Safety Conference or this podcast, please check out our website at michmichsafetyconference.org. Thank you for listening to Safety Spectrum. This is Sheila I.